Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. And this morning we'll be looking at uh, verses 6 through 7. And the topic is the rejoicing that we should have in our inheritance. So I'll uh, begin reading in verse 3. And this whole section, verses 3 through 9, is, uh, is glorious. And if you're looking for a passage of Scripture to memorize, uh, this would be one, I think, that would bear much fruit in your life and in your mind if you commit this uh, to memory. Verses 3 through, through 9. But I'll uh, start reading in verse 3 and I'll uh, stop at verse 6. Verse 7. So please... Uh, Give careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, Peter has just described for us and uh, written to his audience Churches that are going through a measure of suffering and trials throughout their life. And he's just written to them of the great mercy of God in causing them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. This incredible inheritance is something that he wants the believers to focus their attention on. Obviously, we all live in a world which is continually bombarding us with problems and worries and stresses in life. And he says, lift your eyes up. Look on the inheritance that God has given you. Because this is a source of great joy in the life of every believer. So how are we to respond to that inheritance, that gift of that inheritance? Well, again, it's joy. It's rejoicing, as he says in verse 6. Rejoicing that God has given us the new birth. Rejoicing that God has given us a heavenly inheritance that is protected for us and we are protected for it. We cannot lose it. And this should create within us a great joy. But this doesn't always happen, does it? 
Because in fact, uh, though we are given a great inheritance, we're still faced with many trials and, and distresses that he speaks of also in verse 6. So on the one hand, we are distressed by trials. But on the other hand, we are to be rejoicing in our inheritance. And that kind of sums up the Christian life in many ways. We have our distresses, but we should have our joys. So the emphasis in verse 6 and 7 is primarily on the rejoicing that we should have. So let's begin to examine this, looking again at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. So the in this probably is more of a general phrase to go back to the preceding context to refer to the fact that we're to rejoice not only in God, but also in the blessing of the inheritance that He's given to us. So in this, you greatly rejoice. Now, the, the rejoicing, when He says greatly, it kind of makes me wonder, well, is that really a reality? Do we really greatly rejoice in God and in the future of heaven and the inheritance that He's given to us. And oftentimes we don't. Some commentators think that there's maybe a bit of a future aspect to this rejoicing. We rejoice now, of course, to some degree, but we will greatly rejoice when we actually arrive there. But it seems like Peter is describing these uh, believers as actually greatly rejoicing in their inheritance. And obviously it's trials and suffering that a lot of times help us to focus more upon that future blessing. But there is a a great rejoicing that they were experiencing. Now it's true, our greatest joy and rejoicing will be in the future. But we can still have the first fruits of that joy now. And this this is the point, I think, of the passage. Is that regardless of what we're going through in life, The Lord would have us have joy in our inheritance, in our future. So let's look at the nature of the trials that oftentimes rob us of our joy in verse 6. Notice he says, In this you greatly rejoice. In God who has given you this great inheritance, you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed By various trials. So Peter knows his audience. That they are going through trials. And they are distressed by them. Well how can you have joy and be all distressed by your trials at the same time? Well that's just the reality of our life in this world. On this side of eternity. We will experience a mingling of the joy with the pain and suffering of life. It just, they just kind of work together. But the fact that he just said to them that they were distressed by various trials certainly tell us something about our trials, doesn't it? Our trials are not fun. They distress us. They cause severe mental and emotional distress. They cause sadness and sorrow and grief and pain. We are distressed by our trials. In fact, sometimes this distress can be quite severe. 
This is uh, the very same word that's used of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, verse 37, when it says that He was distressed. And of course, you know the environment. He's facing the cross. And He was so distressed and so full of agony anticipating in His human nature the suffering, the pain, the torture that He was about to endure, that He was distressed. So even the Lord Jesus experienced this type of distress to a far greater degree than we ever will. But trials bring distress into our life. They bring truckloads of problems and afflictions that weigh down our spirit. That cause us to have agony and erode our face and steal away our joy. So we're living in a world or being distressed by various trials is a reality that really we can't escape. But what we can do by the grace of God is not let all of those trials and distress weigh us down into discouragement and depression that it can be beaten back by the joy that we have in our future inheritance. And that's where the balance in, uh, comes in. The trial also, it's a challenge. But notice in verse 6, he speaks of being distressed by various trials. All kinds of trials. Your trials may be different than my trials. But obviously within the context of this letter, some of the trials are persecution for our faith. Where being a, a believer in Jesus Christ, the world will, will persecute us. And that seems to be on the rise in America. Now we're still blessed more than other countries where the church is much more severely persecuted. I'm sure all of us have followed to some extent uh, what's happened in Canada and Alberta with Pastor James Coates, pastor of Grace Life Church, who spent 35 days in jail for not abiding by the COVID restrictions and the lockdown when they were shown to be, at least in his neck of the woods, unnecessary, he claims that none of his own people have even come down with COVID, certainly no outbreak. But nevertheless, recently, the, the police have shown up because they continue to meet to worship God. And they put three fences around the church. You've probably seen that. To block the people so they can't get into church. And then they blocked off the, the, the road leading to the church. All the while, the Muslim mosques in that region have hundreds of cars in their parking lot for Friday prayer. There's no objection to that. But you can see the work of Satan that primarily targets the church and believers and Christians. And granted, by the grace of God, so far we have been spared. In China, they're clamping down on house churches, forcing them to accommodate more Chinese control than they have in the past. So again, persecution is a reality. And again, we can thank God and pray and work towards preserving our religious liberties. But ultimately, persecution is a part of it. And, and the, the readers of this letter certainly were being persecuted in part for their faith. But in verse 6, he speaks of various trials. All kinds of trials. So not only were some of them being persecuted for their faith, but others had other kinds of trials 
like health trials or financial difficulties or problems in our relationships at work or at home or even satanic-induced trials of some kind. In chapter 5, Peter will say that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour who has lots of schemes up his sleeve to bring trials into our life. So all kinds of trials. And again, you have yours and I have mine. We all have different sets of trials. So in this life, we're all kind of on a path to where trials are are a part of life. But nevertheless, there are reasons to have joy even in the midst of your trials. And, and if we look at this passage, not only can we have joy in the future inheritance that we have, but we can have other joy in other aspects of even the trials that we have. And now, the trials themselves are not joyful. They're sorrowful. They're difficult. But even then, we can, there's aspects of them that we can thank God for. For example... In verse 6, he says, In this God and His inheritance you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you have these various trials. So we can all be thankful that our trials are for a little while. In other words, they won't last forever. The duration of our trials is that they are all temporary. God ordains the beginning of them and He ordains the end of each trial that we face. And when we go through trials or difficulties, they will not last a second longer than is required to accomplish the purpose that God has intended for those trials. So whatever trial you're going through today, it will not last through all eternity. That's good news. That's something we can be thankful for. Even if your trial lasts to the last breath that you take living on this earth, it will end. They will only be here for a little while and that is something that we can thank God for. At the end of that trial, ultimately, is our inheritance on the other side. So when we recognize that our trials, yes, we're going to have trials. Yes, they're going to be distressing difficulties in our life. But they don't last forever. They're only here for a little while. So be thankful for that. Find joy in that. Because on the other side, again, we have our inheritance that is eternal. It's not temporary. It lasts forever. So in that sense, I think we can have a measure of joy in our trials. Secondly, we can also have a measure of joy in our trials even, though trials are not joyful, but we can thank God that there is a divine necessity of our trials. Look at verse 6 again. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That expression in the New American Standard that I'm reading from if necessary, is a first-class conditional sentence which implies that it is necessary. If necessary, and by the way, it is necessary. That's the implication of a first-class conditional sentence in Greek. 
So it's not, you know, like, you know, maybe, maybe not. No, if necessary, and it is necessary that you go through various trials. It's necessary. Now, the reason why it's necessary is because it's, it's a very important part of God's plan for our lives. That's why later on in chapter 4, Peter will say, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised because it's necessary. The trials you're going through today are necessary. They are necessary because God has ordained them to accomplish a certain purpose in your life. Trials are necessary because of God's eternal plan to conform every believer ultimately to the image of Jesus Christ. And that image was, He was a suffering servant. That He he had to go through the cross before He wore the crown. And we're to be predestined to the image of Christ. Your trials are necessary to conform you to the image of Christ who suffered greatly. His suffering is on a different level than ours. He suffered to atone for our sins. Our suffering is for sanctification. But it is necessary to be made like Christ. Now, if you have that understanding, then it can help you at least have the peace of God and have a measure of joy that knowing that God has prepared it, that God has established the beginning and the end of it, And that it's temporary. Thus the trials are not the result of fate. Or an impersonal force of nature. Or bad luck or bad karma. Your trials are there according to the good purpose. And the good plan of God for your specific individual life. And you can have joy in that. There's a joy in knowing, even though there's sorrow in the, in the trial, but I can know that God is going to work it for the good, for His glory and for my good. And that can help temper the sorrow with a measure of joy because they are necessary. Now really, we don't like that word necessary. I think we would prefer the word optional. Lord, why aren't my trials as optional? You know, I can I can get in or get out of them, and you know, I'll, I'll I'll I can make that choice. No, they're necessary. They're necessary because God has that for you. Paul said to the church on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter fourteen, verse twenty-two. He told the believers, "Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God." We must. There's a divine necessity that's there. Later on, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica and he said, No one, I don't want any of you to be disturbed by my afflictions. And you know, I've had many, Paul says. But I want you to know that we have been destined for this, it's been predestined for us. The afflictions that you have heard about that we have suffered, we were destined for it. There's a divine necessity for it. So when you think about your trials, you can think, 
Man, if I wouldn't have done that last week or a year ago, I wouldn't have all the problems I've got. There's a divine necessity to it. And I think that can free us to not be swamped with discouragement or depression to know that they are necessary according to God's sovereign plan for our life. He orders them. He manages them. He starts them and ends them because He has a specific purpose in mind. Well, that leads us to the purpose of our trials in verse 7. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire. So in verse 7, one of the purposes of God for your trials that you go through is so that they can prove your faith. They can prove your faith. The word for prove here implies the idea of something that's been tested and proven to be genuine. Thus, trials are the fire of our testing which shows our faith to be real and a faith that will save us for our future inheritance. In other words, trials are necessary because they show that by your perseverance, by God's grace, because we are protected by the power of God, that when we persevere through those, our faith is proven to be real faith. In other words, we don't give up and call it quits. I'm leaving, I'm becoming a Muslim or whatever it may be. No, our faith perseveres. So the trials bring that fire. They bring the fire of testing to prove that your faith is not a temporary faith or a defective faith because it perseveres through the trial. And when your faith is proven to be true, then you have the confident hope of the inheritance yet to come. And the reason why I think Peter's writing this is because He probably remembered the teaching of the Lord Jesus about the parable of the four soils. You remember in the parable of the four soils, the seed of the gospel falls upon some who are like rocky ground. And so the seed sprouts up quickly, but there's no root to the plant. And when the sun rises, they are scorched by afflictions or persecutions. And what what does the plant do? It withers away. It does not last. It falls away. And some of the seed fell on the ground with thorns. And the seed sprouted. Plants started to grow. But the thorns grew up around it and choked out that plant by the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and it didn't last. There was no fruit. But when it landed on the good soil, the seed took root. It grew up strong. It bore fruit. It persevered. It bore fruit in that as well. So it's important that faith be tested to show whether it's true faith or counterfeit faith. Counterfeit faith that will not save anybody. It's a faith that doesn't last. It's like the, the faith of the rocky ground or the thorny ground. It shows a little bit of life for a while, but when the persecutions come, when the hot sun starts beating down on it, it just it gives up. I'm out of here. 
moving on to something else. I tried that Jesus stuff. It didn't work for me, so I'm moving on. But what the trials do is they bring the heat. They bring the fire. And, when our, and, and, and true faith, protected by the power of God, will survive it. Now, like Peter, it may stumble, right? It may falter. But because Christ was praying for Peter's faith so that it would not fail, he persevered through it. So part of the function of the trial is to prove that your faith is real, that it's genuine. And that's why Peter throws in the illustration here of gold. That gold is proven to be real gold by being tested by fire. He says in verse 7, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire. So gold is tested also. So how do you test gold? Well, you stick it in a pot. Back then, you build a big fire underneath it. You melt it down. You, as the dross rises to the top, you scrape it off. And what, what you have left is pure, genuine gold. But it takes the fire, it takes the heat to truly prove and test the gold. Proverbs 17, verse 3, really brings these two ideas together. When Solomon wrote, the refining pot, the refining pot is a pot with the fire underneath it, is for silver and the furnace for gold. But the Lord tests hearts. In other words, His tests is the cauldron, the pot with the fire in it, and you're placed in it. And what that's going to do is those tests may cause a lot of sin, a lot of dross to rise up in our life so we can deal with it through confession and repentance. But what it does is it, 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 what, what's left behind is the true, genuine reality of a living faith. And that's why trials are so important in this process. Now God, it's not to show God whether our faith is, is real or not. I mean, obviously He knows, but it's to show us. A lot of people wrestle with the assurance of their salvation. And one of the encouragements they can draw from this is if you're wrestling with the assurance of the salvation, have you gone through some significant trials? And do you still have your faith in Christ? Because that perseverance of faith is one of the marks of a real faith. A false faith doesn't last. But a proven faith, a true faith, will persevere. And that's why it's more precious than gold. Because gold, even though it's tested by fire, I mean, it's perishable ultimately. It's going to be destroyed with everything else on this earth as God creates a new heavens and a new earth. And the gold in the New Jerusalem is a gold not like the gold we have on this earth because it's made out of transparent gold. And we don't know what that's like. I mentioned that last week. But faith is something that brings to us a gift, a blessing of eternal life that lasts forever. So faith is actually more precious than even gold. So don't devote all your life to the goal of just amassing money and wealth. We all need a measure of it. But your faith is more precious than gold is. 
Because you're going to leave all your money behind eventually. But your faith will bring blessings that last forever. So it's more precious than even gold. Trials and necessary because they prove our faith as being genuine. And if your faith is genuine, then you have a confident hope in that great inheritance that Peter has described for us. But in showing our, the genuineness of our faith, trials also grow our faith. And that's a blessing as well. Spurgeon said, faith untried may be true faith, but it is sure to be little faith. Faith prospers the most when all things are against her. Tempests are her trainers and lightnings are her illuminators. When a calm reigns on the sea, spread the sails as you will. The ship moves not to its harbor. Let the winds rush howling forth and let the waters lift up themselves. Then, though the vessel may rock and her deck may be washed with waves and her mast may creak under the pressure of the full and swelling sail, then it is that she moves headway toward her desired haven. No faith is so precious as that which lives and triumphs in adversity. So that's why our trials are necessary. Because they prove our faith. They test us. And they show whether our faith is genuine. Not that you're always going to be responding in trials the right way all the time. I mean, we may complain and groan and moan and our faith may be tested. It may be beaten up at times. But eventually it will rise again. And that's the testimony of true faith. It can falter, but it will not fail. So that these trials are designed not only to prove our faith, but improving our faith to also give us a measure of joy that our faith is genuine. This is something that other authors have emphasized, not just Peter. Remember James chapter 1, when James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, I'm sure we've all read that and we thought, Are you nuts? Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. I mean, that's the last thing that we find joy in, right? But read the rest of the verse. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. See, that's the mark of true faith. It produces endurance. So that's why we can count it all joy when we encounter various trials because as we see our faith persevering through the trial, then that should bring us joy. My faith is real. Yeah, it's, it, it's not maybe where it should be. Maybe it's still struggling, but I still trust in Christ. I'm looking to Christ. And that's something that we can count it all joy. Not because the trial is joyful, the trial is sorrowful. But because it's testing my faith and producing endurance, perseverance by the grace of God, by the, by the power of God. And I can rejoice in that. That He is showing my faith to be genuine through the trial. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. He says, not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. We have, we have joy in our tribulations knowing 
that tribulation brings about perseverance. See, that's why it's necessary. That's why we need the trials. Because the trials come in and, and attack your faith. Is God, does God really love me? Is God really in control? And through all of that, though our, our test maybe felt like it's run over by a few cars, by the grace of God, Christ is praying for us and that faith will persevere. And when we see that our faith comes out of the trial still intact, still trusting and believing in Christ, still looking forward to being with Him one day, then that is something that we exult in our tribulations. Thank you, trials. Thank you, tribulations. Because you're showing to me that my faith is a faith that you have given and you sustain it by your grace. And that faith is going to bring me to heaven and enjoy that future inheritance. So thank you, trials, for for showing me the reality of my faith. That's kind of the idea. Even though the trials are sorrowful, yet they're designed to bring about perseverance. Now it's true, our greatest joy is going to be in heaven when we're with Christ. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. We're not there yet. But still we can have a joy because we know that our faith being tested by fire is persevering and it's that faith that has claim on that future inheritance. And we can taste that future joy now in a small little way as we look and see what God is doing in, in testing and proving our faith. And there's another thing that uh, we can draw joy from uh, in this through our trials, and that is the ultimate result of the trial found at the end of verse 7. That you may be found to result, so, so that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that when we enter into our future inheritance, we will receive the praise, the glory, and the honor from God for what He's done to sustain us and bless us and give us persevering faith. Now, some have said that the uh, praise and glory and honor refer to Christ. And that's certainly true. Uh, Our trials are ultimately going to reflect on praise and glory and honor for Him. But it probably has the believer in view here. That the trials that you're going through now that are proving and testing your faith, your faith is persevering by the grace of God so that it will inherit that great eternal life in heaven with Christ. On that day... When Christ comes back or we enter into His presence, that faith that has been proven by our trials, which is more precious than gold, will be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Christ is revealed. Praise, some will hear, hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Others will hear some other form of of praise, I believe. Glory, yes, will will receive glory on that day. For momentary light affliction, Paul says, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Yes, you'll receive glory and honor. And all the praise and glory and honor that we'll receive on that day does reflect back to God because 
the praise and glory and honor that we receive is all the result of His grace at work in our lives. So it reflects back to God. It rebounds back to God. Because ultimately it's our faith that is protected by His power that survives the testing of those trials. Well, maintaining this joy is a challenge, isn't it? Uh, When we go through trials, it's very difficult to greatly rejoice in our inheritance when my soul is weighed down by the burdens of life. Uh, Even some of the greatest, most godly men of Scripture didn't always have joy. That's why David in Psalm 51 prayed to God, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He lost it. He didn't have the joy. Now if you know Psalm 51, you know why. Because of his sin with Bathsheba, ultimately murdering her husband Uriah. And Psalm 51 is the great psalm of repentance for his sin. Sin has a way to kill joy. Sin has a way to rob us of joy. And that's what David experienced. And we can experience that as well. And I think that's why it's very important that we realize the importance of confessing confessing and repenting of our sin, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. Whenever the Spirit of God convicts me, because sin will torpedo your joy every chance it has. Our joy, what we can attain to in this life, is always going to be mixed with with sorrow. There's going to be a mixture of, of sorrow with our joy. I think whenever you attend a, a funeral of a lost friend who dies, not lost spiritually, but you lose them, or someone in your family, there's a mingle of sorrow and joy. Joy if they're a believer, they're in heaven. Sorrow in the loss. But our loss is their gain. And there's a way that even those two diametrically opposed and opposite emotions can in a in almost a very strange way, nestled together within the soul. Paul in 2 Corinthians said that he was sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So throughout the life, the ministry of the Apostle Paul, there was a mingling of sorrow and rejoicing throughout his ministry. A lot of things brought him sorrow. The sin, the struggles of the church, the false teachers, uh, his own wrestling with his own personal sin. But he said, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And that is the goal for us. You can't avoid the sorrows that come from living in this world. But you can temper it with the joy of our inheritance. The joy of knowing that our God is using all things, even our trials, for a good and a holy purpose. And it's when we focus on that, that we can bring in that joy to help balance out the natural sorrow that comes from the world. Peter experienced this as well in Acts 5 when the apostles were arrested in order not to preach Christ anymore, told that they must obey Caesar, and they said, no, we obey God and not men. And the Sanhedrin had them flogged 
and then release them. And that amazing verse in Acts 5 verse 41 says they went out on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Their backs had just been beaten, bloody, bruised, pain, sorrow, rejoicing that Christ, I belong to You. That You've given me a faith that will persevere and ultimately inherit the glory that You have waiting for us. And probably in their minds echoed the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. And I thank Peter and the apostles, even though they had just been persecuted, yet their faith was alive. And they could rejoice in all the blessings and the reward that Christ promised them for faithfulness in the midst of the sorrows of the world. So in this, verse 6, you greatly rejoice. In this great God who has given us this incredible inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, but reserved for you in heaven, who are protected by the power of God through faith. In this you rejoice. And yet still it is a struggle. Richard Baxter, one of the Puritans, discovered what he thought was a secret of joy and usefulness in Christ's kingdom. And the way he discovered it, he says, when he was a young man, he contracted some kind of an illness or sickness that put him on his deathbed and he, he thought literally he was going to die. He was not going to survive as a young man. But he made up his mind at that point that he would develop a habit for however many days he had left that he would regularly spend half an hour each day and meditate on the life to come, the inheritance that God has for him, and that would escalate his sense of the glory that waited for him and also reinforce his motivation to invest all of his energy, every ounce of his energy in serving God. Because he practiced the discipline of meditating on his heavenly inheritance. And out of that, he wrote the classic work, The Saints' Everlasting Rest. And if you haven't read it, you should. The long form is about 700 pages. There's a shorter one you can get. But it's a great book. Comes, he was meditating on Hebrews chapter 4. The Sabbath rest of the believer is, is fulfilled in eternity. Our rest in heaven with, with Christ. It's a wonderful passage. So if we're going to grow in our joy and our inheritance, we've got to start thinking more about it. That's the whole point why these readers could have great joy because they were meditating and thinking about that future inheritance. And we should do the same. Paul exhorts us in Colossians 3.2 to set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Don't be like Israel out in the wilderness and we're kind of in the wilderness of our pilgrimage right now. 
on their way to the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. Don't be like Israel that kept turning back to Egypt. And oh, how we miss the melons and the leeks and the onions and the meat pots. And oh, we need to turn around and go back to Egypt. Don't be that way. Set your eyes on the future, the glory, the inheritance that lies ahead of us. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. John writes, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. That hope of being like Christ which will take place when the Lord comes back. Paul again to the church at Philippi said, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. So when Christ comes back, this old diseased, sin-cursed body will be transformed and glorified. And particularly if you have health issues and struggling with, with physical ailments or whatever it is, I mean, what a joy to look forward and think of the day when we will be delivered from this cursed body and given a glorified one. Paul writes, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. There's a, there's a joy that comes in meditating upon that future gain. Jeremiah Burroughs, another Puritan, wrote, why should Christians seek heaven? Because Jesus Christ, their Savior, is in heaven. Their King is in heaven. Their treasure is in heaven. Their inheritance is in heaven. Their hope is in heaven. Their mansion is in heaven. And their reward is in heaven. And that should motivate us to meditate more on the glory of that future blessing. And that can give us joy even in the midst of the burden and the sorrows and the distresses of our trials. You know, there's a principle that the higher you fly, the less you experience the downward pull of Earth's gravity. That's why when you get up into space, there's very little of much less pull of, of Earth's gravity when they're in space than when you're right down here on the Earth. And I think there's a spiritual principle there as well. That whenever our minds soar higher and fly higher and get closer to meditating upon the incredible glory and blessedness of heaven, the less the downward tug of the world will be upon our life and our soul. It's very sanctifying. And that's why Peter is encouraging and expressing to these readers, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, if necessary for a little while, you're distressed by various trials. Know that your trials are temporary. Know that your trials are necessary. Know that they're purposeful. Because they are proving your faith to be genuine. And it's a genuine faith that has the confidence of that future inheritance yet to be received. And all of this is something to rejoice in. They rejoiced in it. May God help us to rejoice in it too. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank You, Lord, for just the grace that You poured out on the readers of this letter. 
that though they were going through various trials of different kinds, yet they still had in their mind's eye a focus on Christ and the glory and heaven and the blessedness yet to be revealed. And that gave them a measure of joy. And Lord, we live in a world that is just constantly bombarding us with earthly values and sensual temptations and just the lusts of the world around us all, the, all over the place. And Lord, oftentimes our minds get so distracted that we think so little about the glory of our salvation, the glory of Christ, the glory of heaven. And if, yet if we could by Your grace, Lord, fly a little higher to heaven, we would feel a little less the downward pull of the temptations and the snares and the sins of this world. So Father, by Your Spirit, lift us up pull our minds into Your presence that we might find great joy even in the midst of the sorrows of this life. And we'll give You praise and glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.